This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Refer.com. If you want more clients, check out Refer.com. You can receive a free report on the five biggest referral killers. Just go to Refer.com slash Eternal Leadership. I think that ultimately, it's about knowing the priority of your life. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s, and it was singular. Uh, and very sensibly, for the next 500 years, it stayed singular. I mean, I just want you to reflect on that for a moment, that nobody in half a millennium even thought to use the word priorities. That's important because in the 1900s, as we get into the Industrial Revolution and we're throwing out everything, right? You know, all the old ideas, some of them are bad ideas, some of them are outdated, but some of them are just true, and we're throwing it all out. One of the things we threw out was this idea of singular priority. What is the first thing? Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, Greg McEwen. Now, I wasn't able to be a part of this interview, but my partner, John Ramstead, was. And John has said that our guest's book, Essentialism, has been a paradigm shifter for him. And as you heard in the teaser clip, this is a timeless principle that we need to get back to doing in this age of multitasking and overstimulating technology. Here's how my partner, John Ramstead, got this conversation started on this edition of Eternal Leadership. All right. Well, today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have Greg McEwen. Greg, welcome to the podcast. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you. Well, Greg, I was introduced to you, and we talked a little bit about this before, but a lot of our listeners know my story and what's gone on the last four years. But um, in the last really six months, my coaching practice and everything that I'm doing on my very limited time, 20, 25 hours, has just gone to a whole new level. And Greg, it was six months ago that a coach that I was working with recommended me this book called Essentialism, and I loved the subtitle, Less But Better, uh, because I was very limited with my time. Before the accident, I was, you know, my, my, uh, my mindset was, you know what, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I can just outwork anybody around me. And I would regularly put in 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And now I am limited to about 20, 25 hours a week that I can work. And your book has been one of the most uh, watershed resources that I've read. It's totally changed how I do things, and the results have been absolutely phenomenal. This is a book that I'm that I give to every single one of my clients. Greg, I recommend they read it. We're starting a mastermind group uh, to bring people through just this book and bring essentialism into their lives. So, if anybody's interested in that, please just email me. I can tell you more about that, but. Greg, I just want to just thank you for who you are and the work that you've done and for taking the time to be on the podcast today. It's, uh, it's, it's an honor. And, uh, and I think in your story, there really is this, uh, this it's brilliant case study of the uh, approach of uh, becoming a non-essentialist where we think every, the answer to every problem is we've just got to do more, sleep less, do more. Uh, and uh, and then this this new transition, one you wouldn't have chosen, but that is required of you a completely different mindset. And I think this really is exactly what I mean in the book by you know the way of the essentialist, where less but better can produce breakthrough results. Well, you know, one of your concepts that really resonated with me that I didn't even realize that it was the mode I was in was the undisciplined pursuit of more. I was just pursuing more the best way that I that I knew how, but it wasn't an approach that was bearing fruit. Um, but, you know, before we dive into, I'd love for you to just take a couple minutes and just share with people who aren't familiar with you, just your background and, and where this came from and, and how this message came to manifest itself. Well, there's sort of two stories to that. One is the, the professional journey that, uh, that went, um, uh, you, you know, that re- required doing undergraduate school at BYU, then uh, and Stanford, and uh, yeah, there's, there's along the ways co-authored the book that became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Worked with companies all, all over Silicon Valley and around the world: Apple, Google, Twitter. Right? There's this whole story, eventually culminating in uh, in writing Essentialism, became a New York Times bestseller. Right? And now being able to travel all over the world, focused on this singular message and so on. Right? That's one story, but really, that's that's not the real story. You know, in just the same way as when you look at uh, the sea, you have the, uh, the, the, you can see the waves on the surface. Uh, 
but that really it's the tides underneath that account for 90, 95% of, of the, the wave power of the ocean. So it's not what you see, it's underneath that where the real power is. Uh, and, and that's been true for me. So the real story is, is, um, is less well known, uh, but really is a story uh, of faith from beginning to end. Hmm. Uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So, uh, I mean, it all starts, uh, I'd been on a, a church mission, uh, some, this is yeah, finished 16 years ago, went home, got into law school. So I was studying there. And then a friend uh, from the mission, uh, Sean Vanderhoven had sent me tickets. I uh, called me up and he said, look, I want you to come to my wedding. I've already sent you tickets. You've got to come. And so that was, you know, really nice, uh, moment. And, uh, and, and in the, in the, just right before I left for that, I had really had this moment in prayer where, where I just felt the Lord asking me, will you really give it all to me or not? Will you hold on mm. to some? And, um, and you know, I tell you, I, know, I remember exactly the emotion of that day. I was really afraid. And I was afraid not of amazing things happening. I was afraid that he would ask me to do just exactly what I was doing. You know, that basically he would say, look, just go back to your life, go back to everything you're doing. And, and, and there was a certain sense of like that lacks a certain adventure to me that you know, I don't want to just carry on doing what I'm doing. I feel there's something else. But I was worried that's what he would ask. But that was the price. You know, so I said, yes, I will do it. whatever you want me to do. I will go where you want me to go. No, no fingers crossed. No, nothing holding back. And it, it, within three weeks of that, I was in America at this wedding. And, uh, and, and there somebody had said in passing, they said, look, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should help us with this project. And it wasn't that the project that was compelling. It was the question, the idea, the assumption that I could do something different. And so in the end, because of this, this feeling I had once they asked me, you know, I brainstormed for 20 minutes, what would you do really then? What is, what does the Lord want you to do with your life? And, and when I'd finished, I looked at this piece of paper and what struck me was not what was on this piece of paper, but what was not on the piece of paper. And law school wasn't on the piece of paper. So this whole journey I was on suddenly felt like the wrong path. And you were in and, law school at the time, correct? Yeah, that, exactly. That's exactly the, that was exactly the problem uh, to, to see that it was missing. And that's and a big so, commitment. It is a big commitment. And, and of course, you know, when you're already down a path, you have the additional problem of sunk cost bias. Uh, where you uh, just feel, uh, well, I've already done it. I'm already committed. Do you really want to give all of this up? And uh, and I, I called my uh, called my father from from America and said, look, I think I'm going to quit law school. And he listens for a while. And and then because all Englishmen quote Shakespeare over tea and crumpets for breakfast, he quotes Shakespeare. He <laughs> says he says uh, he says he says to thine own self be true. So then, himself mm. be true. He said, "He says, you choose what is right, and let the consequences follow." That was some wise. That was a wise quote, wasn't it? For, it was. It, it was, and it, it helped to confirm this path is the right path. It's a different path. It's a totally different life. And, and when I think about the trajectory of everything that's happened since then, all the, all the, all the blessings. Uh, you know, that's as I, as I said, I went back and did print journalism undergraduate. That was an amazing experience. It taught me to how to, how to write. Felt like I didn't have those skills before. Um, that's where I met my wife. That's how we got, you know, we got married. Uh, I mean, literally, I'd written for the newspaper, and my wife had read that. My now wife had read that in the newspaper and felt this connection. And then we ended up meeting, also sort of spontaneously bumped into each other. I mean, there's just so many serendipitous experiences have happened from that day to this, uh, and and it's been this total different adventure. And I feel like I can trace the whole thing back to a single moment, a single decision, everything good has happened, I can trace back to that moment of holding my life in my hands and going, okay, is it mine or does it belong to him? And basically, in spirit, what I was saying is you don't have to take anything from me because it's already yours. So if you want me to do this, I will do it. If you don't want me to do something, I won't do it. And, and that has been the same, you know, ultimately, whatever challenges come along, whatever issues come along, you have to come I've come back to that moment and that decision again and again and again. And, and, and how this all connects, let me just make the, this connective idea, because I think that ultimately it's about knowing the priority of your life. So the word priority came into the English language in the 1400s, and it was singular. Uh, priority, one thing, the first thing, the prior thing. 
And very sensibly, for the next 500 years, it stayed singular. I mean, I just want you to reflect on that for a moment, that nobody in half a millennium even thought to use the word priorities. And that's important because in the 1900s, as we get into the Industrial Revolution and we're throwing out everything, right, you know, all the old ideas, some of them are bad ideas, some of them are outdated, but some of them are just true, and we're throwing it all out. One of the things we threw out was this idea of singular priority. What is the first thing? And to me, um, you know, and I I say this very, hopefully very openly to to people of very different faiths and different views, um, but unless Jesus Christ is the priority in your life, then something else will be. Someone else will be. And that, for me, is massively different. That has changed materially how I have thought about my life, what trade-offs I have made. Uh, and so to me, this, this has to be singular. You know, as you're talking, Greg, is you made that relationship with Christ. You, you made that, you know, uh, put aside that fear and stepped into this calling. And there's so many people that are right at that inflection point in their life today. But I'm just thinking about what's happened. You know, as you followed this path, here's John Ramstead sitting in Denver, who has incredibly benefited from you being willing to follow this new path that God's called you to do. And I know for a fact, using your book and your work with clients of mine and in their companies, just the transformations that they have had, people that you've never met because you were willing to be obedient and and step out in faith and get out of that comfort zone years ago. Uh, you know, that is something that's available to every single one of us as we start examining our life and finding our unique value and figuring out what is essential and then having the courage to move forward in that direction. Yes, I mean, I, I, I first of all, I'm humbled by what you just said. And, and, and I'm, I'm humbled not because, um, but I'm humbled because I feel like this process of essentialism there is, you know, the phrase you already used, the disciplined pursuit never stops. And so I feel right as we're having this conversation today, very much in the throes of it again. So, mm. so, and, and this is, this is critical both because it's sort of the true story of my life right now and the conversation we're having, but it's also true because I think this is, this is the whole point. Essentialism isn't just a single thing. It's not a moment. It's not something you just sort of do. And then you go, okay, well, I think I've done that, read that, put that away. It is the work of life. And so I, I think I would put it this way if I was, you know, I, I would say it's like the disciplined pursuit of the Lord's will at the Lord's time for the Lord's reasons, right? Mm-hmm. It's that, or it's the undisciplined pursuit of, you know, our will, our timing, our way. And and it's a continual process. I mean, I love the word discipline, and I love that it comes from the same root word as disciple. You know, the idea of a disciplined pursuit is a discipled pursuit. It's this constant process. And I remember C.S. Lewis talking about this, that, that in the early days of our faith journey, uh, we are, are comfortable with the changes he makes. You know, so we're a little cottage to use the metaphor he uses, we're a cottage in and we know the chimney's broken. So when the Lord comes in and says, oh, we've got to shake that up, we've got to improve that, we go, yeah, well, of course, and put new windows in. Yeah, I can see that. It needs to work. And then all of a sudden, he just slams out a whole door, a whole wall. And we just go, what, what is happening? This is, this is unnecessary. I don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. And, and we have to be in this trusting place of, of all right, um, well, do I trust that he knows better for me? And slowly we perceive that he doesn't want us to be a cottage. He's trying to create us into a castle. He has a completely different sense of who we are than we do. And these metaphors are all very well, but using C.S. Lewis again, he, he's going through all of this suffering because his wife dies of cancer. And he's just suddenly, he's, he's been a teacher of Christianity for all these years, preaching about it, explaining about it, te- writing about it. But all of a sudden, he's up to a line where he didn't expect to be, and he's in pain, and he's suffering, and all of a sudden, he, his whole faith journey is going to the next level. But I just feel in a, that, that life is like this constantly, that we, we go through a phase, which, whose will will pursue? The undisciplined pursuit of our own will or the disciplined pursuit of the Lord's will? Which one? And we choose the Lord's. Okay, we win. We succeed. 
And then we start to learn that and we, in hindsight, we go, oh, that's why he didn't want this. And that's why he let that happen. And it all makes sense in hindsight. But then it happens again. And it's the again moments that really are painful. They just are hard. And we don't have to pretend they're not. And we don't have to. It's not, not weak to struggle. Uh, but we have to go through the renewing process again, the sanctification again, the, the burning, you know, again. And I, I just I'm frank to say that I feel um, I feel some of that right now. You know, as, as I'm hearing you talk, Greg, um, you know, what I think your approach has equipped me with is is this discipline process. So as you're going through these peaks and these valleys, you have a way to think you have a mindset to use that actually focuses you on how to take that next step forward. And sometimes we're so confused on just what direction we should even walk. Um, and we had Jeff Goins on recently, and he said something that really struck me. He said, action begets clarity. So sometimes it's just taking having disciplined action. And as you move forward, you start to get that clarity um, in your life. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to take a step back and have you just share, uh, you know, what essentialism is and what an essentialist life looks like. And, and then I have some questions I'd love to, to, to flesh out here. And then I'd really encourage people to get this book and, and read it and go through it. But so, so let me, let me do that. So first of all, essentialism is the disciplined, relentless pursuit of less, but better. Um, it has within it three basic questions and they're totally so simple, but don't let this, it's like the simplest idea in the world. In fact, these three questions, these three steps, but don't let the simplicity of it, you know, conners into thinking it's simplistic. I don't think that's right. But here are the three questions. It's like, first, you're going to create space in your life to ask and answer the question, what is essential? And, and underneath that, there is the basic logic that we can't do everything. If we try to do it all, if we try to make everything the priority, everything is a priority, everything's important, then what we'll do is we'll make a millimeter progress in a million directions. We'll get pulled off course. We'll end up living a parallel life, you know, a good life, but not the essential mission in life we're supposed to live. Um, and, and so that's the first idea. What is essential? And I recommend that people hold a personal quarterly offsite. So we have an executive development program. It's a one-year program, and people come together every 90 days for a year together, and then there's exercises in between, to hold a personal quarterly offsite. And that's we think this is so important because to be able to create space for what to, to ask this question and answer it, you, you, you can't just live the normal life now uh, because you'll always be on the phone, always in the next email, always disrupted. That's the first thing. The second thing is once we know what's essential, it's to eliminate what is not essential as gracefully as possible. That means uh, developing new skills. Most of us are novices at how to say no gracefully. Uh, there's a whole chapter in the book about just how to say no gracefully. It's about making you know, trade-offs. Can I tell you something yeah. about that? I was just Do, there was a very large publisher who uh, called me recently, asked me if I would be on their board of directors. And I had just listened to the book again the second time, and that was fresh in my mind. And I told them, no, because I knew it was essential. I said, here's why. Here's what I'm working on and focused on. And you know what? They were so thankful that I was firm in my no because she was very happy that she didn't have to spend six months kind of courting me and following up. She was so glad to hear that. And a friend of mine, one of my clients that I'm working with, Greg, uh, he's on five boards. He went through this process and he goes, do you know what? Three of these have nothing to do with what's essential in my life. And he went and resigned from these three boards, found them somebody to go onto these boards and freed up about 10 hours a week in his time, which he is now applying in just some incredible ways. And, and all the feedback he got from people when he was able to share exactly why he was saying no, how this fit into his life, his priorities, what he's creating, um, the conversations were incredibly fruitful and he was a little nervous going in to have those conversations uh, i just really appreciate those stories and uh and and we'll just back support that that what you're describing is is an important order you know, so i didn't write a book called noism right uh i wrote a book called essentialism and the order that really matters because it's not about saying no 
uh, you know, sure. to everyone and everything without yeah. thinking about it uh, any more than it is about saying yes to everyone and everything without really thinking about it. It's saying yes to what is essential. And therefore, absolutely and for sure, you will have to say no to what is less essential. I mean, the thing is that I'm, I'm trying to connect between those two ideas, these step one and two, is that there's always trade-off, uh, that, that we, we sometimes are conned, absolutely conned, uh, to believe that you can have it all. In fact, if you can fit it all in, then you can have it all. I mean, that's almost word for word what we have been taught in various ways, uh, a life with no trade-offs, that that's what we should be going for. Uh, and and we just not one of us have that actual luxury. Not one of us have that scenario. What what we have is every time you say yes, you're saying no. Every time it happens. And so what I'm trying to do is say, how thoughtful can you be about what's essential so that you can deliberately say yes to that and no to the non-essential? Yeah, because if if you're not thoughtful in that area, um, you know, if you're not prioritizing your life with multiple priorities, but that's another conversation, right? But if you're not doing it, somebody else is doing it for you. Well, this, this goes to the jugular of, uh, along my journey. One of the, one of the painful moments was when he, uh, my boss at the time, uh, emails me uh, early in the week and says, look, Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. Because I, I, I need that you. That sat well with you. Because, <laughs> because <laughs> I need you to be at this meeting between one and two at this client and so on. And you know, here I am. I've spent all these years writing, uh, teaching, working in leadership, and so on. And so you would think I would be empowered enough to to know what to say. But actually, um, Friday comes. Baby is born. My wife and baby are healthy. But instead of being focused on that essential activity, instead of being present. I was pulled in a million directions and, and certainly in at least two. Now, mm-hmm. so I'm on the phone and I'm on email and I'm trying to do both. How can I do both? See, that's the answer, right? Every, the, the, the non-essentialist answer to every trade-off is how can I do both? Do you want more money or more time off work? Yes. I mean, every trade-off, we want both. So in this case, I'm just how can I keep my wife happy? How can I keep my boss happy? So I go to the client meeting. That's, that's, that's the short of the, the story. And and afterwards, I remember my boss said to me, the client will respect you for the choice you made. And I don't know. I just don't know that they did. But even if they did, uh, surely I made a fool's bargain. Surely I robbed my wife, uh, you know, myself from the thing I should have been on. Mm-hmm. And that is where I learned exactly the lesson you just mentioned, which is if, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And... So this is a personal experience to, to, to illustrate what I think a lot of people uh, struggle with. I don't think I'm the only person who has given up their power drip by drip to other people so that they ultimately uh, control, dictate the direction and, uh, and timing of our lives. And, and although I don't suggest that we can just instantly take all of the control back of our lives. I do think that drip by drip, we can correct this imbalance and we can start to get things into place where we can follow um, the, the, you know, the, the spirit within, that we can do what we know inside is what is most important and not become a function of other people's expectations of us. Well, I think in your example, myself and probably everybody listening can think of a time in their life where it was very painful uh, to have our priorities set for us. And I think whenever we're just feeling that anxiety, that stress, that friction, you know, we're doing something in our life that's really in conflict with our core values, but we just don't have enough clarity on what those are to be living those out in our lives. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And and I'll add to that that I think there's a, a success paradox that is a very important one to learn. And, and it's this. When we get focused on the right few things at the right time, I mean, even, even from a, a, you know, a faith perspective, we're doing the right things, right time, right reasons, all of that. And it leads to success. It leads to, uh, to, to something that's some, some great result. But what happens as we get success? What happens next? There is a natural uh, yeah, reaction, which is that we become the go-to person. 
uh, people go, oh, this person's good. This is great. Well, what about this? And there's more options and there's new opportunities and there's all sorts of things that we can pursue. And that very natural expectation is the problem because it can undermine the very focus that led to success in the first place. And so it's because of that very natural success cycle, that success paradox here, that if we're not careful, uh, success will become a catalyst for failure. And, and to me, this is the real test of essentialism because in failure, failure traps are easier to get out of than success traps. Because in failure traps, we're incentivized to change. This isn't working, so therefore I need to do something different. But in success traps, we are being incentivized to keep doing what we're doing and more of the same. And that is a risk. If we wish to break through to the next level of contribution and to go to the next level of contribution, we have to become even more selective than we were when we were first, uh, you know, first trying to set out to get to successful. So, uh, so this, this, this is a, a non-trivial idea, I think. Uh, I, I agree. And I would, I would love to dig into that, but you, you talked about three areas, uh, you know, create space, find out what's essential, then eliminate what's next. What was, what was your the uh, third point? I appreciate you bringing it, getting us back onto track with that. Uh, the, the, the third area is to make execution of what is essential as effortless as possible. So let me just summarize those again. What is essential, eliminate what's not, and then make it as effortless as possible to execute on what is essential. Those are the three steps. Now, I gotta, I gotta put this into real context. I put them together in my yeah. life right now. So, so talking to my wife recently, she really wanted to have a set time to do exercise every day. So she exercises every day, but it's like she has to really work on it each day. Like, okay, do I, you know, the kids get them after school? Shall I do it afterwards? Shall I do it before? You know, how do I do it? And so we spend a lot of time. We say, look, this is essential. This is, uh, this is key for protecting the asset of my wife, my, uh, the mother of our children. This is really important. And so in order to do it, we actually had to end up really – reconfiguring and thinking through everything in our routine. Like it, there wasn't, you couldn't make this tiny little change. You had to say, okay, well, to now enable that, that means we have to get up earlier. So we decide, okay, we're going to get up at between five and 5.30. So that's when we're going to do it. But that's not enough because then all the children still need different things. And, and the morning schedule, I mean, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but I tell you what, for, for having gone through a morning and evening, you know, schedule with, we have four children, thousands of times, I can hardly believe that it's as hard as it is. You know, talk about effort full execution. It's just a constant battle. So, yeah, you know what I'm talking well, about. Well, I've cracked it up because, you know, we have three boys and, you know, it's the same routine every day, but there's always so many variables. And you feel like you look at, uh, you know, my wife and I look at each other now and I'm like, why is this so hard? <laughs> this, why is it so hard? <laughs> it should be the same it thing every day. It should be so hard. I mean, I just every night. Hey, I remember, I remember, and I, I love that it's, I remember, because that implies that I like something's, I've got a solution here, which I <laughs> oh, do. Oh, good, I hope you do, yeah. But I remember this feeling every night, looking at my children, these smart, into otherwise smart, intelligent, capable little children, and just saying, but have you cleaned your teeth? Yes. Does that mean you have flossed? No. And it's like, we've done this hundreds of times. You know, and I'm just like, there's got to be a better way. And it's necessary that we find a better way because this enables my wife to be able to do something that's really important for her. And so I, I take this on. This becomes a priority action, and we have to do all this work. Well, we, we, we find through a friend a, a system, and I wish I knew the name because I'd love to send everybody there to get it. But it's something like the miracle uh, point system. You probably search for that, and you'd find it. But – but here's what it is. It is a recording. This is for morning and evening. It is, this is, this name so well what I mean by effortless execution. You figure out what's essential. You're willing to make the trade-offs. That's number one and two. But then you have to make it effortless. This is how the system works. Every child um, has to get enough points, 150 points, and they, then they get to have a date with mom and dad. And they can choose what the date is. Go to dinner, go bowling, whatever, right? So this is the, this is the reward system. How it works, there is a CD that you listen to, and there's a song 
followed by an instruction, a song and an instruction. And each instruction, it, the song is the amount of time they get to complete the instruction. And for every completed instruction, they get a point. Now, it's the same every, every morning. It's all the same. And then each evening is a different routine to the morning, but it's every, the same every day. So it's the same system. So we now have it you know, on speakers, broadcast to our whole house, every room so everyone can hear it. It starts the wake up. So you've got a minute a song playing for the wake up. Then the first thing, make your bed. That's a point. And there's a song for it and so on. So they have thought through the whole system. We've got a chart that we created. We didn't use the one they created. We, we created our own that was personalized for our family. And they, they, there's a point system on there. My point is that once you set the system up, instead of investing your energy into the constant reactive process of getting this done every day, forcing it to happen, pulling out your hair and your own kids hair sometimes, to get it to happen, you build, you put the energy instead into creating a system, and the system makes the execution as effortless as possible. I'm telling you, I mean, we're only actually a few days into this, so we'll see. Maybe months from now, we have a different story, but I'm telling you right now, it's amazing. I've never had it work so well. It's effortless. It's full of joy. It's full of positivity. Every one of them up. I'm telling you, this morning... We put it on at six o'clock. By seven o'clock, everything was done. Scriptures were done. Piano was, it, we just, the whole thing was amazingly productive in comparison to a normal morning. Greg, just, I, I, I love that. I love the energy you have right now because you're just talking about how, how this chaotic process is now working. And, uh, you know, and I, I, you asked, I asked you when we first started, how long is the interview? And I jokingly said two to three hours, but. I'm sure everybody listening, there's so many points that we could dive into that they would love to uh, hear you keep talking for, for the whole time. But, you know, I would love to circle back to this because, you know, as I went through your book and went through this process and I was working with the coach, some of the areas for me that were just most challenging was just get that first step. And this is where I start with all my clients, but it's about that clarity. To say yes, you have to know what you're saying yes to and why, and th then you then you have a framework on what to say no. So when you talk about that clarity of what is essential, wh what is that? Well, I mean, first of all, uh, clarity is about 10 times harder to achieve than people think, uh, but it's about 100 times more valuable once you do. Mm, so I it's it's a sacrifice worth having. Mm -hmm. But in terms of clarity, I mean, I mean, we could attack this in a few different directions, but, uh, but, but I think at any point you've, you've got to really be able to identify, look, um, long term, what is my essential intent? What am I really trying to accomplish? What is the one thing that really matters? So if in your business, what is your one, two year goal, let's say? If you only achieve one thing, what is that thing? You've got to be able to articulate that and it's got to be clear and it can't be one of these vague vision statement, mission statements kind of thing. Uh, in fact, I'll give you a little tip that I've come to find useful, uh, which is, uh, which is, you know, a vision statement is the why. Why am I trying to achieve what I'm trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. The mission statement is the what. What is it that we're doing? And then the strategy is the how. How will I achieve this what uh, to 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 pursue this why? And and what I've learned is that you just have to take the time. You just have to spend the time on it. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's totally, it's absolutely solvable problem. Getting to very high levels of clarity is a, a solvable problem, but it isn't if we just try and do it between emails. You know, this is why this personal quarterly offsite is so important to have one day every 90 days away from technology, away from people to really wrestle with these questions until we get to a point where we say it's this, this matters most. This if I could only do one thing, this is what I want to do. This is what matters. Um, and then I also think we ought to do that professionally, uh, personally as well. And so, so I continue. I generally go through this every ninety, every ninety days to the point where I can say, okay, this is my the the one big goal I want to achieve in the next ninety days, personally. So, in my family, my wife, family, professionally, within my business, this inc. And then also at church for me. So there's actually three areas. But even there, I have them prioritized, and I know the priority order. So for me, the priority order is family first, uh, then it's business, and then it's then it's my church service, uh, because uh, you know I I feel like this is the 
if, if, if I, because I feel this is what the Lord has really prioritized for me, this is what he wants me to, here's how he wants me to assign my time. And, and you can, you know, you can see how, how this would be the case. Uh, but those are some of my thoughts about this. Uh, for for getting to clarity, you know, you've worked with so many leaders, Greg. What what do you think is some of their biggest roadblocks or things that just slow them down or stand in their way from taking that time to get that clarity? Well, I mean, we live in a busyness bubble, uh, so there is a cultural challenge that's just tremendous. The book is more countercultural than I even understood it was when I wrote the book. Uh, you know, everybody is consumed in this idea of more is better, busyness is better, of this kind of worldliness that just that just says, you know, instant gratification. What is happening right now is the most important thing. You know, what the last email says, that's the important thing. I mean, the last email almost has, has no connection to importance. You know, they're completely different criteria, but we treat the latest thing as if it's the most important thing. So, so I think it's a cultural challenge that is that's the primary thing that gets in the way it's that is that is that people you know even after they've read the book maybe they say oh well i just trying i tried but it's so hard to do yes it is sean who i mentioned before uh emailed me uh, after he read the book the first time or called me uh, rather and, and said you know this book should come with a warning you should say this is the hardest thing you'll ever do and, and i think that's right especially because of the culture of our time so what do you do you've got to get you and a team of people around you read the book together uh, you know, th- th- you've got to get the language uh, going between each other so that you can help each other to make the transition from the non-essentialist, uh, you know, paradigm and perspective to the essentialist. So uh, it's not enough to say, oh, yeah, essentialism, that's, that's good. That's one more thing I ought to do. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's a mindset shift where we actually become a different kind of leader. We become an essentialist. And increasingly, I think that's, that's a process, and it's a process we have to go through with a team of people around us. Well, I think that, that builds on exactly what I was thinking that I wanted to ask you and ask is, what is the mindset of an essentialist? Somebody that actually reads this book, goes through that well, implements this in their life, what are some of those common characteristics you've seen that people have applied this that are getting the results that I'm sure you're hearing from all corners? I think, I think the, first, the first part of the mindset is this, is that, is that a non-essentialist thinks that everything's essential, but an essentialist thinks almost everything is non-essential. Mm, that's powerful. And, and in fact, uh, and I'm quoting somebody else here, but the, the, the idea that it's difficult to overstate the unimportance of practically everything. It, as soon as you believe that, as soon as you discover that, you go, oh, my goodness, what is it then? If that's true, then what is essential? Then it justifies the work and time and energy required to find out what's essential because you start to think, to use the metaphor, we're not shoveling coal. We're looking for diamonds. If we're looking for diamonds, you approach it very differently. Okay, well, then where are the diamonds? Okay, let's be thoughtful about this. How, what, what is it? And where would, how would I find it? Where would it be? We'll, we change our whole approach overnight from this uh, perspective uh, that you mentioned before of just sort of doing more, you know, trying to do it all, trying to just fit more in, sleep less, work more, to a point where we think more, discern more, and we do less. That's, I think, the first and perhaps the heart of the matter with the mindset of an essentialist. Well, you know, it makes me think of uh, the success paradox that you talked about before. There's so many of us, you know, as we get more competent in what we do and we're leading organizations or companies or nonprofits, and then, you know, people know they can count on us. So they come to us and they ask us to do more and do more. And it feels good, right? It not only just feeds our ego, but we want to help. We want to serve. And then all of a sudden, we have all this stuff in our life that we feel like we have to do. And what you're talking about is having a mindset of saying, what do we choose to do? Yes, I think that that, that becomes, if, if there are sort of uh, two or three elements to the mindset, I think the second one is, uh, is this heightened awareness of our ability to choose. That, that, uh, that from a faith-based perspective, that we, we just know we were actually designed, created. As we're created in the image of God, we were created with the ability to choose. And in fact, you can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of it. 
It's inherently, deeply. In fact, it, what I actually believe is that God himself didn't put it in us, that it's actually so eternal, it's just inherently part of what it means to be a child of God. What it means is that we cannot not choose, that we always have this pristine, unique ability. And the question of our entire lives is, how will we use that ability? What will we do with that that agency and and what i've learned is that although i think it cannot that ability cannot be given away it cannot be taken away even it can be forgotten and that's the that's the tricky thing is that when we're working with these clients or this boss or in these cultural environments you know that's everyone's so busy in these environments we can uh, we can forget you choose you can choose where to go. You are actually the pilot and you get to choose which direction to go in. And that, that to develop a heightened awareness of that, to remember it is, uh, is key to being able to use it effectively. So I think that is the second part of, of this mindset. That is such a powerful point, Greg, that God has given us this ability to choose. It is an amazing, deep and meaningful gift. And it's how we choose to use that gift every single day. I'll never forget, you know, after my accident recovering, I was sharing with a good friend of mine that I felt like I've just been given this amazing second chance in life. It just felt uh, almost like a burden because I, I felt like I've been kept alive. And w what am I going to do with this? And as I've sorted through that, it's just become incredibly freeing. But he said something to me. He goes, you know, I would submit to you that every single day for every one of us, it's our opportunity for a second chance. Uh, and that's because we have this ability to make choices every day and we can change. It's like that, uh, uh, what's that movie with Heath Ledger and he was the knight and he was the peasant and he wanted to become the, you know, the jousting. Yeah, knight. yeah, a knight's tale. A knight's tale and he wanted to change his stripes. Change his, change his stars. Change his stars, right? We have, the, we have the ability every day to change our stars with the choices that we make, don't we? Oh, it's, th it's thoroughly true. It's exactly the experience that, 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 uh, that I've been describing. And, and I also want to extend this a little further, which is that, you know, as in, that, as in A Knight's Tale. So he does. He changes his stars. I found that a very inspiring movie. Uh, he, you know, he becomes a knight. Uh, he becomes he in his heart feels like he already is a knight, but nobody else recognizes it. Mm -hmm. and, and and as he as he holds on to that, um, I mean, I would say self-image, but I don't think that's quite right. I mean, I think that I think that uh, from a faith perspective, it's God's image of us. It's holding on to that, allowing him to show that to us so that we slowly. I mean, really, this discover this. That essentialism isn't about essentialism. Essentialism is about becoming more of who we really are mm. and less of who we aren't. Mm, that's and right. and I, th I think that's what this journey is about. Mm -hmm. Stripping from ourselves all of the social identities that have been placed upon us, all of the social expectations that, that we've absorbed, what other people are doing. I mean, in today's world... It's not information overload. I mean, that's a problem, but that is not the problem. The problem is opinion overload. Mm. It's that we are constantly being shown ourselves in a social mirror, but it's like a hyper mirror. It's like we're seeing image after image of what we should be and how it should be. It's like, you know, it's keeping up with the Joneses on steroids because of social media, because on Facebook. I mean, people just go on Facebook. They just feel worse afterwards. And that's what happens. Yeah. And it is not great for people. Uh, and that's because it's just this, this because, because people are basically lying on social, uh, on, on Facebook. That's really what it comes down to. But well, we only put our best face forward. If we're on there point. constantly, you're just, all you're seeing is these amazing moments. You're like, God, my life is horrible. This is, this is, and this is the form that it's, it's deceptive, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? It's, I'm not even saying people are tr d deliberately being deceptive, but they're certainly being selective. Yes. in what they share and what they don't. And we don't consume that in the way that, uh, with, that with that in mind. And so, yeah, I mean, I, this opinion overload floods our mind with images of what we should have, be, do. And out of all of that, we have to get very quiet and listen for our own voice inside. There's my favorite painting. It's by, uh, it's by uh, James Christensen. It's called The Listener. 
it's beautiful. I have it in my office here, and, and it's a it's a, a, a painting of there's a man sitting in the in the center. His eyes are closed. He's got all these people around him. I mean, literally everyone from you got Shakespeare, you've got all these you know, amazing all sorts of people, people that look like your your, your mother-in-law, maybe your, all these different friends. It's just this very loud image of all these people talking at him, and his eyes are closed, which is a the the graphical representation of listening. You can't show somebody listening in the same way on a picture. So this is him closing his eyes to listen to the conscience within, to his own voice, to Lord, what is it you want me to do in all of this noise? And and I think that's that, as I said before, this isn't one more thing to do in life. This is the very work of our whole lives to listen to that, to discern it, what is essential, to eliminate what's not, to have the courage to not do what other people are doing just because they expect it of us or just because we think that we have to keep up with them and uh, and to make it as effortless as possible then to do those things, to put in systems that make it you know, easier to actually do the things that matter most. Well, you know, as we wrap up, Greg, and that was such a great summary, any, any just final thoughts you'd like to leave with people as they've listened to this whole conversation? I, I think that where this conversation has led me uh, I mean, I, I alluded earlier on, and I'll just be honest about this and, uh, and and connect this together. What I'm struggling with right now myself is is that there are all these things that I really want to say yes to now. Mm-hmm. They're the goals that I really wanted, and in fact, in most of the cases, actually pursued. Like, for example, uh, my my agent wants the next book, publisher. Uh, or publishers, I think, would be ready to ready to to sign on. Um, that's great. I mean, that, that's the problem I want, isn't it? That's what I, I I wanted to be in that situation. And yet, I feel inside that's not the right thing now. That's mm. not what you're supposed to do now. And so I'm not doing it. And I know what I'm supposed to do instead. Uh, but but I have no idea how to do it. I have no. I I, I just it just I've known for couple of years that this next thing I have to do but I don't know how and so it's so it's it's like right back to the beginning you feel like a child going oh I'm learning how to walk again um and and so instead of doing uh the 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 project that I have uh that's obvious that's easy to do that's in front of me that's pulling that that, and I want to do it I want I know what the next book is and I want to do it but I can feel it's not the right thing. And see, that's why I feel like it's this perpetual choice between the disciplined pursuit of the Lord's will versus the undisciplined pursuit of our own will. And I feel like that decision for me that I'm describing right now is as hard for me, that one is as hard for me today as, you know, quitting law school was uh, 16 years ago. It, it, because because the, what what is on offer is better now. That's even cooler. The next book, and it's worth a lot of money and so on. And it makes a lot of difference. There's all these reasons that I'm sad to want to do that. But I, I have to be willing to sacrifice that if I want to go to the next level. I, I, that's literally exactly right. I know it's true. If I want to stay at the same level, just do the next book. But if I want to go to the next level, I have to say no to this, eliminate this option, at least for now, and move on to the next level of contribution. Well, you know, I tell you I'm smiling right now because uh, I share with my clients because I've been here when you finally get to that place where you just don't know what's next, you, and and you're in in your back in that place that you were in law school is the perfect place that you need to be in to start. That's what the, when you have that clarity of that's where you are. Um, stand by because some amazing things are going to happen. So I, w- I would just tell you that it's just as a as a huge encouragement. I really value it, and I want to I, I want to throw this together with. I actually feel really affirmed as you say that, and I want to add to it this simple idea, which is that there's only two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are lost, and then there are people who know they are. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. And it takes courage to be in the second category mm-hmm. because you have to admit it. It's like you know, I don't know if anybody else had uh, had you know father or someone who maybe drove along and didn't want to got lost in the car and didn't want to stop and get directions you know um i mean that's that's the whole that's the whole paradox of it isn't it the paradox of being lost as soon as you admit you're lost you know what to do stop and get directions what makes what what causes the real problem of being lost is not admitting it 
feeling so embarrassed and frustrated that you just don't want to admit it. Then you just have to keep going in circles. The moment we, discern, the moment we accept, allow ourselves emotions to accept, I am lost, I don't know what to do, then we know what to do. Then we turn to the Lord, then we turn in prayer. We go, okay, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. What is next? Mm-hmm. And that seems to be the quality of heart, this broken heart and contrite spirit that it talks about in scriptures that is always required. And, and I think that's really what the whole journey of essentialism is. It's coming back to this broken heart, this sense of, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. Where do I go? And then we can hear a voice behind us, as, I, as Isaiah wrote about, hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way walking in it. We've got to keep coming back to that quality of heart. And it's hard to do in cycles of success because success has its own agenda with us. Our own success has its own agenda keep us doing what we've been doing and not to be in that condition of humility, that condition of brokenheartedness, to be able to hear, uh, you know, the voice of the Lord guiding us forward. Mm. If you'd like to learn more about Greg McEwen, his book Essentialism, his blog, even a quiz on how essentialist are you, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 093. That's eternalleadership.com slash 093. And we'll have all those links and more eternalleadership.com slash 093. This edition of Eternal Leadership has been brought to you by Refer.com. When my partner was building a $300 million book of business, he used spreadsheets, calendars, CRM, etc. to build and manage relationships and get referrals. Refer.com automates all that work in relationship management. Both John and I use Refer.com and we can't recommend it highly enough. If you go to Refer.com slash eternal leadership, you'll be able to try it for free for 14 days. And as I said at the top, if you go to Refer.com slash eternal leadership, you can receive a free report on the five biggest referral killers. Refer.com slash eternal leadership. Next time on Eternal Leadership, Steve Haynes comes back for a quick update on what The Navigators is doing to bring kingdom business to foreign countries. From that, it's really more of a self-assessment. Do you have what it takes to be a missional entrepreneur? But there are other things that you're not the CEO of the company. There are other things that you need in that company. You need a CFO. You need a CEO. You need a CTO. So we, we find that there are really more teams that are coming out of this. With many countries restricting missionaries, the Navigators are training teams of people with missions, hearts, and business. Here's some uplifting stories next time for John Ramstead. I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.